Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'd like to take you back to 1992. Moviegoers were watching Jack Nicholson tell Tom Cruise, you can't handle the truth. In the film A Few Good Men, the music group Boys to Men was singing about the end of the road and how they can't let go. In politics, it was a time of new beginnings. Democrats signaled a new era by putting forward the youngest presidential ticket ever, with two 40-somethings, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, carrying the party's banner. I took advantage of that energy and atmosphere, throwing my own hat in the political ring and running for San Francisco school board, becoming the youngest person elected to office in the city when I was 28. And that year, the former mayor of San Francisco, Dianne Feinstein, was elected to the U.S. Senate in what came to be known as the Year of the Woman. Barbara Boxer also won election to the Senate in California, and that was seen as a revolutionary and risky endeavor to put two women up for both of the Senate seats at the same time. Well, 31 years later, a lot has changed in the world, beyond my hairline and waistline, and Senator Feinstein is not going to run for re-election, and an intense, competitive, and high-profile contest is underway to replace her. Since these seats don't come open very often, since a lot of national attention is already focused on the race, In today's episode, we're going to dive into California politics and look at the race for the U.S. Senate. And for this conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, and our resident data expert and former California resident, Dr. Julie Martinez-Ortega. And this is Julie's first episode of 2023 with us. I'm glad to have her on. Charlene, Julie, how are you both doing? Hey, Steve. I'm doing great. I'm really happy that Julie's with us. I miss her so much, and I can't wait to talk about California. I feel like we could you know, if not probably for some copyright issues, I play uh, you know, a number of songs that have California themes in them. Probably a lot of listeners don't know. But I'm originally from New Jersey, I was born in New York City, but I was doing the math last night and on and off, I've lived in California for a total of 23 years, which means I've lived here more years than I lived anywhere else. And that's still strange for me to say, because I still think of myself as an East Coaster. <laughs> yeah, you're no longer a Jersey girl. You're now a Berkeley girl. I'm always going to know, but that's the thing. I'm always going to, I think it's just, that's how one's, mind. like, you know how you always talk about Ohio. It's like where you grew up is so, it shapes you so much and it shapes your identity, sense of self and identity. So I always think of myself as a Jersey girl, but there's no denying. I have definitely spent now more years in this ultimately amazing state. So I'm really glad that we're going to be talking about this race today, uh, it just got me thinking about how even when I was young, I was really drawn to California. And what that comes down to is I feel like in my mind, and I think a lot of people's minds, this state represents a kind of for me, it was like a forward thing is where things certain things were happening first. And I always looked to whereas I felt New Jersey and New York were more traditional. California just seemed always kind of more progressive. And I guess also in my lifetime, because I know it wasn't always as you know, much of a democratic state as it is today, but even not even politically, because even as a young person, I wasn't thinking electoral politics. I think I was just thinking socially and culturally. There was always, Mm -hmm. it's like the wild west and where things were happening first. So I'm so glad to be talking about the race today and really happy to be here with Julie. Hi, Julie. We've missed you so much. (laughs) I miss the sound of your voice. Yeah, Uh, same here. Great to be here with with you again. How you doing? (laughs) I'm great. Thanks. Yeah, your comments really resonate with me. Um, I was a high school senior in Texas, deciding between an Ivy League college or Stanford, right out on 
out on the California coast and had that same sense that the future was California and the past rearview mirror was the East Coast. And, you know, really sort of much of my life has turned out the way it did, I would say, in in good ways, uh, because of the choice to really do what I considered moving forward by going to California for college. And, you know, for many years, and it's it's interesting because I think people have started to try to criticize California at the national level as politics have become more conservative. But, you know, the idea that the United States will one day be what California is today. You're looking at the Mm -hmm. future of the country when you look at California. And California in so many ways, not just in the cultural and social sense, but also just business economics uh, in terms of the whole growth of Silicon Valley, the internet, what that's represented. And really that all happened because of the sort of Pacific Rim um, approach, philosophy, right? Understanding of sort of where the U.S. connects to the rest of the world. And it's not just back to Europe. It's also looking toward the Pacific. And so I love California. I think California is still that that thing that we have to look forward to for the rest of the country in so many different ways. So I'm excited to be talking about, about California in the next Senate race. Yeah. Well, it's so funny that you guys are framing it that way. I hadn't even thought about it until you were saying it, Charlene, Mm. that similarly, I was drawn to California because of the newness. And I similarly was choosing usually between Ivy League and Stanford and was drawn to Stanford because of that innovation, that forward lookingness, et cetera. And that is where I met, you know, Julie Martinez Ortega. Yeah. Steve, as you had mentioned today, we're going to be talking about the 2024 California Senate race. That's the U.S. Senate seat from California. And that is it feels pretty far away, but folks, here we are. It is uh, spring 2023, and it's really not that far away. As with election cycles right now, the race for this seat is gaining more tension, more momentum. And it's you know also added with that the news about current Senator Dianne Feinstein's hospitalization uh, for the shingles. And we do all hope she gets better. And we'll talk more about that later. But I wanted to give a little background for listeners because we are obviously have California a connection here on for the three of us, but many of our listeners are not from here, are listening from other states and wanted to give some background about this race before we dive into the details. At 89, Dianne Feinstein is the longest serving woman in Congress and the body's oldest member. She announced her retirement back in February and the race to replace her is quickly gearing up to be one of the most expensive and most watched in the country. No surprise. So a little bit of background about Dianne Feinstein. As you mentioned, Steve, Feinstein became California's first woman senator in 1992. Part of the reason that year was known as the year of the woman, by the way, is because it was the year after Anita Hill's testimony during the confirmation hearings for Justice Clarence Thomas. In 1991, an all-male panel of senators, many of us remember watching this on TV, grilled Hill about her sexual harassment accusations against Thomas. Hill's testimony became the catalyst for the record number of women elected to Congress in 1992. There's an excellent documentary, by the way, about that period called Anita Speaking Truth to Power that everyone should check out. Now Feinstein's announcement that she'll be retiring after the end of her term has opened up a really high profile and competitive race to replace her in the Senate. 
And just to give context, the fact that Feinstein has held that seat for 30 years shows that this is a political opportunity that in cases like this, where somebody holds a seat for that long, um, it just doesn't come along very often. So the stakes are high in terms of who ends up winning that seat and what their politics are like. So, Steve, you have a column that ran earlier this week in The Nation analyzing the race, and we're going to link to that in the show notes. So far, there are three main candidates for this seat, namely Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, and Barbara Lee, all California Congress members. Porter and Schiff are white. Barbara Lee is African-American. Steve, how do you feel they're stacking up against each other at this point? And generally, how are you thinking about them and their candidacies? Yeah. So just for in case people don't know, I think people may have, you know, brief or like tangential understandings of these. So let me just try to situate both the, the the race and the candidates. And I think what's most significant about them um, from a, like a movement, social change uh, perspective is that they represent different sectors of the Democratic Party and different sectors of the center left movement. So Katie Porter has really captured the imagination of progressive whites and small dollar donors in particular by like her creative and aggressive questioning of corporate executives testifying before Congress. She has this whiteboard where she'll write questions on and she'll hold it up to the witness and then she'll really challenge them and jam them. It's very confident and very forceful in a way that really, I think, excites progressive donors in, in particular. And so they respond by, you know, sending her checks and she's built up a really strong fundraising apparatus in that fashion. And in some ways that she kind of channels the populist, you know, feisty mold or brand of Elizabeth Warren and Warren has has endorsed her. So then Adam Schiff is not exactly the opposite, but in demeanor, his his whole vibe is this, you know, very calm, thoughtful, fact-based approach. You know, the, the, what I talk about in the piece about this embodiment of the age of enlightenment ideal, right, where politics is supposed to be very high-minded and superior arguments and facts prevail. It's kind of referred to it as like a Mr. Schiff goes to Washington type thing. And in that vein, he was the lead house manager in Trump's first impeachment trial. So it's very, you know, serious setting, marshalling the arguments, laying them out for the country, providing this, you know, authoritative, you know, rebuke of his abuse of power and whatnot. So that approach uh, and the fact that he is, in fact, the most politically moderate of the three but his approach is it really resonates with him. I've seen this and he's loved by liberal major donors. They long for that type of politics and being above the, you know, grubby fray. And here's what reason and facts and logic lead you to. So he's done very well among major donors in particular. And actually, like a lot of Pelosi's major donors, and she's actually come out and endorsed um, Schiff in the race. And then Barbara Lee, she is the race conscious champion of peace and justice. She was a leader in Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalitions, where I got to know her back in the 80s. She worked for and then replaced Ron Dellums in Congress, right? And so Dellums got, was elected from Berkeley on an anti-Vietnam War platform. And he led the charge for sanctions on, a, on South Africa's apartheid regime in the 80s. So she led this charge starting in the 70s, and he prevailed in the 80s. And then Lee was the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and the Progressive Caucus. And she's most famous for being the sole vote in Congress against going to war after 9-11. That popularized the phrase among a lot of um, anti-war activists of Barbara Lee speaks for me. If you say in your nation piece, the one that I referred to earlier, that came out earlier this week, which everybody should check out, that most people think the race is 
primarily just a contest between Schiff and Porter. And I think that if you even read news coverage starting from you know a couple of months ago, you would think that the only two people seriously running. And my understanding is this is because they've historically been the strongest fundraisers. But your argument is that that's not that assumption isn't accurate. Say more about that. Right. So his, historically, people have not kept up with the demographic revolution, bottom line, right? And people still, you see it all the time in national politics, even like they do polling um, results, like the polls show the voters this and the voters that. So it gets one big, undifferentiated mass of the voters who are relatively all the same and relatively all swayable based on events and ads, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not at all the case in terms of how the actual electorate works. And, you know, as we have uh, tried to articulate through two books now over a decade, there's been a demographic revolution that has transformed the composition of the country. We talked in a prior podcast about the new majority index that we rolled out, looking at um, congressional races premised on the significant data point that the racial vote gap in preference is one of the most significant data points that there actually is, right? Nearly 90% of African-Americans always uh, vote Democratic, significant majority of whites always vote Republican. And that's a pretty big gap over, you know, 40 plus years. And so people don't look at that reality. So they trans, they see politics as, oh, this one has a lot of money. They'll be able to run ads. They'll get to the voters and the voters Mm -hmm. will then make that calculation. But the voters are very diverse in general, and particularly in California over the past, uh, you know, 30, 40 years, the state's gone through a complete demographic revolution. And so you have to look with a race conscious lens at the electorate. If you really want to know what the possibility and potential is. So what I try to lay out in the piece is how that demographic revolution has unfolded and how the composition of the electorate is different and how that means that you can't have these same assumptions that just who has the most money is going to get the most votes because it does not necessarily translate that way. So that's the the essence of the analysis in the piece. And it's the, you know, it's the great missing hole in the analysis of most people who are out there. But this is where democracy and color comes in is to fill that void for the American people. All right. So speaking about numbers, let's dive into the polling and the numbers for a better look and turn to our doctor, Dr. Julie. Julie, can you help us understand how the state's numbers can help us better understand this race? Sure. So I find this whole uh, conversation fascinating because I used to work for Alan Cranston, Senator Alan Cranston. Uh, It was one of my first jobs after college, actually. And when I first came to D.C., that's where I was um, able to land a position in his office in D.C. He was the senator from California who preceded Barbara Boxer in that uh, Senate seat. And he served also for a very long time. He was in that seat from 1968 till 1992. And, you know, he represented the state of California, which, you know, has had its demographic composition change dramatically since the point when he took office. So in 1970, whites in California were nearly 80% of the population and people of color were slightly more than 20%. But by the time that Dianne Feinstein took office, whites were only 60% of the state. And today, that number has dropped all the way down to 35%, with people of color making up that other portion and numbering 65% of the current California residents. 
Latinos are now the plurality in the state. They account for 40% of all California residents. And as I said, whites um, are 35% of all the California residents. And a lot of people just really don't appreciate the size of the Asian American population there. It's now 16% of the state overall and a fast growing portion of the state. And of course, African Americans are there in meaningful numbers at 6.5%. That's always a good reminder. I mean, I live in California and I'm still struck by the fact that whites only make up 35% of this state. I, I, Mm -hmm. I even, I live in a diverse part. I live in Berkeley, but I don't feel like I feel uh, Berkeley is actually quite white, whiter than, you know, people might realize. And so it's, yeah, it's hard to remember that 65% of everybody who lives in California are people of color. And as Steve wrote in his books, the ones that we've worked on together, Brown is the New White and How We Win the Civil War. I just you know, wanted to provide more context and remind people that A, the U.S. had explicitly whites-only immigration laws for most of its history, which has essentially resulted in this country having been vastly white for a very long time until those laws were made obsolete or you know removed because of the passage of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. So after 1965 is when the country really became increasingly brown or people of color. By the way, my own existence is a result of that law because after that my parents were who um, were students, college students in Taiwan, they were invited by graduate students in the U.S. to attend grad school here because the laws made it so that it was easier for schools to invite people from other countries, namely students of color, to come. And then those students, a lot of them could then settle into this country and become citizens, and which is what my parents did. And B, it's important to keep in mind that even today, not all people of color who are in this country, just like not all people of color in this state in California who are 18 or over are eligible to vote. And so that also, you know, changes the makeup of the voting pool and not everybody who's eligible to vote and especially people of color who are, they don't necessarily vote. So having said all that, Julie, what share of the eligible voters today in California are people of color? Well, that historical context is really important to remember just in general. And um, just to highlight the hypocrisy of those anti-immigrant laws in particular, when you think about it, much of California and all of Texas, which is where my family comes from, was once part of Mexico. So it's just, um, you know, it boggles the mind that such laws were able to even be controlling. Despite all of that, the demographic revolution is still transforming the California electorate. So to answer your question, Charlene, 55% of all the eligible voters in California are people of color. And in the 2020 election, 51% of the actual voters, meaning people who, who did in fact go in and cast a ballot, 51% of those actual voters in California were people of color. So it is the majority of people voting in elections as of the most recent election in California are people of color. Yeah, and I just think that that point is really important to lift up and emphasize because like so much of the analysis, we're talking about how the state's 65% people of color, 55% eligible voters. But if you read these articles about California politics, almost everybody they quote in terms of consultants and experts and blah, 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 is a white person. 
And there's no analysis or an appreciation of the fact of the diversity of the state. And so the, the presumption still is that to win elections, it really has to be how do you appeal to white voters, even if it's offer implicit or explicit how it's talked about, but that's the driving thought. Where in point of fact, as a as a you know technical matter, conceivably, you could actually get elected in California without a single white vote. Because the majority of the voters are people of color. That's actually. just so, wild. Yeah, but that's not <laughs> at all in the mix, right, in terms of the conversation. And I think the other thing in terms of the center is why it's so important. We try to, and I'll talk about this particularly in Brown is the New White, but just in general, is that people of color, and we were talking about before about there's this profound, you know, partisan voting preference gap between people of color and whites, and the people of color are intrinsically more progressive. And I think people are afraid to say that, but like, oh no, everybody is whatever. But it's just actually a material fact when you have a profound racial wealth gap, which we have in this country. Average white family has on the order of $150,000 in assets, the average black and Latino on the order of 10000 that the people who have less money are going to want more change. And so that it makes them more progressive. And that does play itself out in electoral patterns, and it, and it plays itself out in terms of the appeal of different candidates. And I think that's going to be a significant factor um, in this race. Julie, uh, speaking about this race, what polling data is there right now and what does it show? So there have been a couple of polls out. Uh, it's obviously really early, but still, I mean, they they at least point to where we're, we're heading. So the headlines show sort of what you'd expect at this stage of the race, which is very tight contest between the best funded candidates and very large pools of undecided voters. So the Berkeley IGS poll, uh, which was conducted only among Democrats and no party preference voters since um, no Republican candidates have yet announced. So they only polled Dems and no party preference folks. Uh, in that poll, Schiff has the support of 22% of the respondents, 20% backed Porter. So pretty much head to head there. Um, 6% supported Barbara Lee. But 39% of the voters that they uh, surveyed were undecided. And that's a really high number when you look at the numbers of people who who were backing the three most prominent so far candidates. The poll actually also asked about Ro Khanna, who uh, got the support of 4% of the people who were polled. But um, he's actually endorsed Barbara Lee and is the co-chair of her campaign, so he's not going to be running. And when you add that together, the Rokana supporters, it brings that undecided vote really closer to 43%. So uh, there's there's really what all it confirms is that a lot of people still are up for grabs. Each of the four hopefuls was viewed favorably by the voters. So you didn't have any really negative sort of responses among uh, the voters to the candidates that have stepped forward. But huge swaths just did not know enough about them to have an opinion of them. And that was especially true for Lee, who drew blanks for more than six out of 10 voters. So with that large of an undecided number, you've got significant implications for the race, meaning that the race is very far from being settled. And most notable, just to point out here, is that 49% of Latinos and 42% of Asian Americans were undecided. So another aspect of this race that I think that isn't fully appreciated, particularly in terms of looking at the polling numbers, is that California has this top two um, uh, election system. So like in other states, 
you have a Democratic primary and Republican primary, and the winners of those go on to face one another. California has one primary of candidates from all parties run, and the top two vote-getters then face off against each other again in the general election runoff. So it's entirely possible that you could have two Democrats get through, because there's so far not a strong Republican, um, certainly not a strong, well-funded Republican in the race. And so that will then also reshape the calculation. The primary election is March of uh, 2024. And so after that, whoever the top two are, people will probably take another look nationally in the perceptions around who can win and who not, who cannot win, et cetera, will be re-engaged. And that will also be taking place in the context of the national presidential race. So the other thing about that is it takes fewer votes and less money to get into the runoff. And so that's something people aren't fully appreciating as well, is that one could get into the runoff with a lower vote number, not as big a financial outlay, you know, particularly important, you know, somebody like Barbara Lee, but then if they do get in, then it could get more national attention. They could boost their fundraising. So that's a very significant structural and strategic reality of the election that people don't fully appreciate. Julie, I wanted to ask you, you've looked at the electorate and the polling numbers. What does a winning formula look like in this Senate race? And what percentage of votes would they need in terms of demographics and geography? So to answer that question, you really do have to look at a combination of those raw numbers, the demography with the racial aspect that Steve uh, just pointed out, and um, geography. So in terms of the raw numbers, in the 2020 primary, slightly more than 9 million people voted in California. And in a multi-candidate race, you probably need about a third of the votes to advance. By advance, I mean what Steve's referring to. You need to be in one of those top two slots for vote winning. It could be less, but it depends on a lot of variables. So, let, But let's just assume for purposes of the conversation that it's one third of the voters that you're going to need. So if 9 million people voted, then that's 3 million votes that it takes to get into that into that race. So there's lots of ways to get there. And that really is what a lot of pundits don't appreciate, as Steve mentioned. So there are 8 million eligible Latino voters. Theoretically, you know, you could get elected senator with just Latino votes. You know, you'd need an, an incredibly large turnout. California Latinos actually turn out at decent rates relative to the rest of the country. And they are a solid voting block. They've established that time after time um, in elections in California. There are 4 million Asian Americans in California, 2 million African Americans, and 12 million whites. So, you know, do the numbers right there, 14 million people of color, 12 million whites. So the big question, though, becomes what will be the voter turnout rate of each racial group when it counts in this next race? Whites, we know, tend to turn out at higher rates. And, you know, the question really is, will candidates or groups invest in boosting the turnout among people of color voters? How much will Schiff and Porter and Lee split up the white vote is another big question. Uh, how much can Lee consolidate the people of color vote? Can she get support from that large Latino voting block? And if so, that would be a very meaningful uh, way to, for her to advance and get into one of those top two slots. These will all be key factors. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was talking about, too, in terms of the, the pundits don't appreciate that there are different paths to get to the numbers that you need. Right. So in 1988, Jesse Jackson won the presidential primary in Michigan. I still remember that one of the biggest pre-Obama days of my political life. 
But the way he did it is because they had same-day voting registration. And so you didn't have to register in advance. And so Jesse walked through the housing projects in in uh, in Michigan. And it was like, come on, y'all, let's go vote. And people came out and they voted and they swamped the polls and he won the election. And that was not factored in to the analysis. And then similarly, uh, 20 years later, Obama in Iowa, in the Iowa primary, people had these formulas for how many voters you need, you have, what you have to do with the electorate. But they expanded the electorate. I think they almost doubled it in terms of number of people voting, getting more young people out, and that transformed the calculation and enabled Obama to win to win the Iowa primaries. And then just one other thing that's going to be a dynamic in this race is the question of what is going to happen with Republicans. Because there's about a third of the state's voters are Republican. Um, state uh, Trump got 35%. As I mentioned, they'll all be voting in that same primary election in March of 2024. So Republican if they had a consolidated vote, could conceivably get into that runoff against one of the three Democrats. And then furthermore, you've got this long tradition, unabated tradition, Republicans trying to manipulate and trick the, trick the voters. And so there's a guy running whose name, apparently I went to, to law school with this guy. I mean, Kuma was telling me she remembers him from law school. He has changed his name, apparently legally. He's going to be on the ballot as Barack Obama Mandela. But he's a he's black and he's a Republican, and so he'll have an R by his name. So could he get a bunch of the Republican name? Then could he trick some black folks to say, "Oh, that must be a black person, Barack Obama Mandela," to inch him up a little bit to then potentially nudge him, his way into the into the runoff? So a lot of dynamics are play, but I think the important thing with Julia is saying is that what's the route to three million votes? And there's a lot of ways to actually get there. I'm going to change my name to like Michelle, Yo, Sandro, and see if I can get more <laughs> jobs. <laughs> that is just a crazy story. Yeah. Okay, before we wrap up, I do think we should, you know, just quickly touch upon one, uh, you know, situation that is sort of the backdrop of this race right now, which is the recent developments around Senator Feinstein's health and this race. So again, Feinstein was hospitalized for shingles in early March, and she hasn't been back in the Senate since February. She's missed 60 out of 82 votes so far. And there's just been a number of articles and social media conversations with people and pundits wondering if she'll ever return to D.C. And there's also been, you know, not so quiet conversations, how she should step down that she should step down now. And last week, Congress members, Ro Khanna and others were publicly, yeah, calling for her to step down. There's also been, by the way, pushback and supporters on her behalf, basically calling out those pressuring her to step down, saying that that kind of pressuring is sexist, is ageist, with some people pointing out that a men like John Fetterman in, uh, in Pennsylvania have not been pressured to step down when they had health issues and needed to take time off. So it's um, all been kind of interesting to follow and different takes on it. In the meantime, there she is not active and and there is things that are not getting done because there's she hasn't been able to uh, perform her duties. So it's complicated. She did announce last week that she intends to return to her post and finish out her term, but that she would allow a temporary replacement for her on the Judiciary Committee so that Democrats could move. Biden's judicial nominees through. If the seat does become vacant, then Governor Newsom can fill the seat by appointment. When Kamala Harris resigned her seat to become vice president, many folks lobbied Newsom to appoint a black woman as her successor. 
But then he ultimately selected California Secretary of State Alex Padilla to become the state's first Latino senator. By the way, there was an LA Times article last week asking whether Newsom would make good on his promise to appoint a black woman as senator, since he did back in the day say that he would. And our friend and former guest Ludovic Blaine, who is the executive director for the California Donor Table, said in that article, for the second cycle in a row, he's ignoring the viable progressive black woman. So it's a little strange when he didn't do the Karen Bass endorsement. That made me wonder about the pledge. So that's Ludovic's comment. And I know many people are thinking about that along those lines, too. Steve, I was wondering, what are your thoughts about A, Feinstein resigning, what should happen, what she should do, and what about Gavin and his pledge about appointing a black woman? Yeah, so it, this is very much in the news and very much a current and relevant reality. I think what uh, Ludovic was talking about also was that in the uh, Los Angeles mayoral race, where Karen Bass, who had also been chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, ran for mayor against a uh, wealthy white former Republican who spent $100 million, a fairly conservative person. And Gavin Newsom didn't endorse, certainly didn't endorse in any kind of timely fashion. And so that's what Ludovic was referencing about Gavin's silence around black women for these positions. And so the promise he made was back in, uh, as we were saying, we went after you know, Kamala stepped down. So he's trying to do his own political calculus around pleasing different constituencies and how to be responsive. So that, you know, there was, when Kamala left, there was, no, there was no black woman in the Senate. But then California had not had a Latino senator, and as Julie just laid out, the plurality of the people in California are Latinos. And so he weighed, he did that calculation. And I think his marketing of that was to say to that, oh, if another seat comes up, he'll appoint a black woman, right? It's a little bit of kind of what Biden did about putting a black, saying he put a black woman in the Supreme Court, not necessarily knowing or even believing that that opportunity would present itself, but it's a good thing to say, but then it presents you, what do you do? So Gavin should absolutely honor his promise if, in fact, that seat becomes vacant. Well, let's step back to another thing. I do personally think that Feinstein should step down. I think it's the responsible thing to do. I think it is an acknowledge, it, it takes responsibly one's position and factors in the realities of life and aging and, frankly, mortality. And that people try to ignore these different things, but the same way you have to put your affairs in order, if you're the representative, for 30 plus million people, you have to attend to their affairs as well. And that has to take precedence over your own desire to stay in a certain particular position. So I actually personally think she should step down as a matter of good governance, a matter of democracy, a matter of uh, attending to one's own legacy and being responsible in that regard. And if she were in fact to do that, then I do think Gavin should honor his promise and appoint a black woman to that seat. There'll be reluctance to do that because you have these strong, well-funded candidates of Porter and Schiff. If you were to appoint Barbara Lee, who's the logical person who we should who should actually receive that seat, since she's contesting for it, she can you know run to uh, defend it, when it uh, as well. So that's what I think should happen. But we're going to see what does happen, and it's not clear at all. But it's very much in the mix, and it's very whispered about. And so that's why I wanted to say those things more forcefully and clearly um, as we move forward in this process. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, Steve. It, it's a certainly a complicated political dance with, you know, you've got multiple constituencies and just one seat to, to um, appoint someone into, assuming that she does step down. It's important that, you know, we 
kind of point out, appointing somebody gives them this incredible head start. I mean, it's basically anointing will be the next person. If if Newsom were to say it's Barbara Lee, that 4%, 20, 22% ratio there that the IGS poll shows, that would shift overnight. I mean, the the power that comes from being able to say, I'm the appointed person, I'm sitting in this seat, I'm not just a placeholder, I'm going to be on the ballot in X number of months. It's, you know, it can't be underestimated. As we discussed, the largest racial group in the state is now Latinos, the plurality. And obviously, yes, that factored big time into Newsom picking Padilla. He cannot, though, just ignore Black voters, especially since Kamala was that lone Black woman in the Senate, right? He made that promise. You know, I guess you could say the bluff is being called on it, but then you got to step up. Um, he probably didn't think it would become relevant, but now here we are. And there is no Latino candidate who's really rising to the top in terms of saying, hey, I'm throwing my hat in there and I've got, you know, a strong backing. Uh, I've got a lot to show for my ability to to win one of those top two slots. So Barbara Lee's there. She's ready to go. I don't see what the why that wouldn't be the move to make at this point. Yeah. And the other aspect of this, I didn't really thought about that much before now, is that if you want to you want to throw out the morality of the matter and just look at the math, Gavin is very clearly running for president. If not mm-hmm. 2024, then in 2028, he's created this national, you know, political action committees and these national media interviews. And he's really trying to position himself and establish his brand as a contender for the presidency down the road. African Americans are just 6.5% of the California population, but they're a much larger part of the Democratic Party primary process. And so mm-hmm. he wants to be competitive going forward. He needs to honor this promise about appointing and empowering a black woman. Absolutely. And I know we're going to need to wrap up soon, but I just want to say that I, I know it's early on and I'm excited to see how it unfolds. Being in the Bay Area where Barbara Lee is a household name, I just hope more people get to learn about her. Just this is like somebody who I think offered so much and accomplished so much and it's really you know special. I think there are probably all those uh, voters that you mentioned before, Julie, who are undecided. There's many people right now trying to learn about all three candidates. And I'm just looking forward to and hoping that people will learn as much as possible about her. She's a bit of the currently underdog uh, in the according to the numbers. So I am just overall looking forward to see how this all plays out. Yeah, and she's very clearly, you know, the most progressive and the most race conscious of all the candidates. And I just want to give a quick shout out as well to Latifa Simon, who's also a prior guest on the podcast, who's running for Barbara Lee's seat in Congress. And so what I was saying about Latifa yes. is that this is a special seat, right? I mean, Ron Dellum, and it's a special seat in the national political discourse. Ron Dellum's held this seat. He was a national champion around peace and justice. Barbara Lee, the only person standing up against going to war. And now, you know, Latifa's stepping in to fill that seat. But it reflects that Barbara Lee has been a distinct and unique voice within national politics. And to have that voice in the Senate would be a very distinctive reality. So we will see how all of this unfolds over the next several months. And but for today, it's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. 
You can subscribe to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is Democracy in Color production, produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio, San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.